Welcome one and all. My name is Chris Stone, the Virtual Agile Coach, and this is the Virtually Agile Podcast, the pod that shares conversations with Agile thought leaders, as well as amplifying newer voices. You'll hear about agility, virtual working, and everything in between. In this episode, we'll discuss business agility, lessons from failure, and why agile transformations fail. If you find value in listening, don't forget to subscribe on your platform of choice. It's the best way to get the latest new episodes as they land. Enjoy the show. Fellow Agilists, welcome to another episode in Season 4 of the Virtually Agile Podcast. And as you know, the central theme around Season 4 is failure and how we destigmatize it. So we'll be hearing from our guest on that topic today. Today's guest is the author of the book Six Enablers for Business Agility. And kudos, by the way, for its current presence on Amazon alongside the works of Jeff Sutherland and Lisa Atkins. He is a business agility expert, a non-exec member of the Scrum Alliance, and a keynote speaker. I'm pleased to welcome Kareem Harbert to the show. Thank you, Chris. It's it's great to finally get to do this. It's been uh, in the pipeline for some time, eh? It has indeed, yeah. So Kareem, for anyone who isn't familiar with your work and what you're about, tell us more about you and your background with agility. Right. So I I came reasonably uh, traditional route, I'd say. Um, I was a, a software engineer for a few years, <laughs> not a great one, but I did write code for a living and people paid me to do that. Um, I, I was a project manager of software projects in the waterfall sense. Um, I then became a scrum master, sort of uh, almost against my will, because I had no idea what it was, but I thought, oh, I'll give it a try, why not? Um, and it was at that point where I, I felt like I'd found my my passion, right? It felt like I, I'd, got, I'd got a bit disillusioned with the whole thing as a project manager and it kind of rekindled my my joy for what I did. So I spent a number of years as a scrum master. I then started to transition to work with leaders on, on culture and structure and sort of innovation and, and sort of at the at the sort of uh, enterprise level, I guess. Uh, and uh, so the last um, sort of seven, eight years, I've been doing that and loving doing that. And so that's really been my path um, through kind of engineer to project manager, scrum master, to innovation and business agility coach. Excellent journey. And it's it mirrors so heavily my own experience, minus the fact that I haven't ever been a developer. When I look at the codes that people create, it looks like the matrix to me. It's just like ones and zeros, lots of green on a screen. So I've never experienced that side of things. But I have very similar to you, began as a project manager in the traditional waterfall world, kind of what I guess I describe as seen the light a little bit. Um, and actually, once upon a time, started to describe myself as an agile evangelist, learned a bit of a lesson there. But similar journey we've had nowadays, I tend to work with more the, the exec level, the organizational level change and trying to bring about uh, behavior change and mindset behavior and yeah, changes there. So you have written a book called The Six Enablers for Business Agility. I'd love to hear from you, Kareem, in yes. your words, what is business agility? How would you describe it? Yeah, Um so for me, um, you know, we, we, we can take the, the values and principles of agility that we uh, sort of in the first wave of agile applied at team levels, right? So that's being adaptive and responsive to, to deliver more, more value to our customer um, and, and obviously then scaled up. So multiple teams doing that. For me, business agility is the kind of the logical third wave. And that is how do we create whole organizations that can respond and adapt that are engaging places to work and that can continuously deliver the most value to their customers by by doing those things, right? And so 
organizations that are nimble, that can create new products, new services, new business models, as well as executing on their current ones um, as the, the world changes around them. And so, so they can remain relevant. And really, that's what I mean. It's a continuation of what, what started in Snowbird, but applied at the enterprise level. That's, that's how I define it. I like the description. Thank you. So a couple of words sprung out to me there. Resilience. So that that ability to be resilient to change in the, the environment that I guess also the responsiveness to then change and adapt to the needs of our customers and the, the competitive nature of things out there. It's a couple of our words. Now, you, you wrote this book, Six Enablers, and I think the description of it was about going beyond just processes and tools. So what advice would you yeah, give to yeah. any any leaders who are embarking upon change, who are aiming to bring agility and business agility to their organizations? Yeah, this, this was a lesson that was learned in my years as a scrum master and, and subsequently in my many years consulting and coaching um, with big, big organizations, is that mostly we approach organizational change when we're trying to achieve agility by... Um, adopting some new processes, new practices, um, new tools, new technologies, new frameworks, right? This would be Scrum, design thinking, whether it's user stories, velocity, TDD, like all of these things are what I call ways of working. Mm. And they are good things, mostly, when applied in the right context. They can add value. But, but many organizations really struggle to get them working and to get them bedded in and to get the value from them. And they struggle because, uh, and that's how I describe it in the book, they haven't created the organizational operating system for those things to work. In the same way, if you tried to install an Android app on an iPhone, it, it wouldn't work because it's the wrong operating system for it. If you try to install these new processes and practices and tools on a traditional organization, they don't work because it's not the environment for which they were designed. So the six enablers of business agility is how do you create that operating system to allow all of these cool techniques, which are really great techniques, by the way, the scrums, the lesses, the safes, the design thinkings, the lean startups, all of that stuff. How do we create the operating system for those things to work? Um, and the book sort of outlines the areas I think are important to focus on, areas like leadership, like culture, like organizational structure, like HR, people in engagement, and like governance and finance. You get that in place, then you have a fighting chance of those apps those those frameworks and tools those ways of working um, actually adding value to your organization and to your customer so that's why i wrote the book because i think that message needs to go a bit further than it's gone i completely agree it very much needs to go further i think we've seen for years and years waves of that kind of copy and paste what we've seen work somewhere else into an organization and expect it to succeed yeah. but with it not taking into account the needs of the people, the context, the situation, the culture in, in place. And therefore, when it doesn't work, being, oh, well, this, this transformation, this agile efforts failed or agile isn't doing what we need it to. When in fact, all of those things that, that, that you could be trying, I see them as backlog items or that there are options in your disposal, tools in your agile toolkit. You might say, let's trial Scrum and see if it works for us or Kanban might be more appropriate, or actually we, we've got a bit of Kanban, but let's try some scaling approaches because we have a larger operation going on here. And all of those things may add value, but I think it's when they are copied and pasted uh, without any contextual changes, without any customization for the needs of the business at hand, that's when we start to face challenges. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And, and so the key message here is context. 
right? And and that is every organization has a unique culture, a unique structure, uh, a unique set of challenges, a unique vision. Um, and so recipes work if you can create the same environment to execute those recipes, right? If everyone has the same ingredients, if everyone has the same oven, if everyone has the same pans, you can recreate the same beautiful cake. But if everyone has different ingredients and different ovens, and some people don't even have an oven, they have a barbecue and some, then you need principles um, on which to create your own recipes, right? And I think that's that's the thing that we lack a lot of in, in the agile space. We want, we want the answer, but, but actually we need the principles to create our own answer. Absolutely, and, and just the environment where you are able to try something, learn from it, and then adjust accordingly. To me, that's that's what agility is about. It's Agility is bred by continuous improvement, and continuous improvement comes from pausing to reflect on how you're doing and adjusting accordingly. So those agile principles, inspection, adaption, and otherwise, are absolutely key. Now, Kareem, I'm a, I'm a fan of, as you're probably aware, these, these visual techniques using canvases, creating experiences for those that I, I work with, including retrospectives. And I'm, I know that you shared a business agility canvas, which I'm, I'm quite a fan on. Tell us, a little, tell us and the listeners a little bit more about this canvas and how it can be used uh, to bring about business agility. Yeah, sure. So um, uh, I've experienced my fair share of... Um, I don't want to say failed, but um, organizational transformation that didn't quite bring about the benefits <laughs> that the organization was hoping for. Let's put it that way. Um, and uh, what, you know, there, there are a few reasons for this, but um, two main reasons, right? Uh, apart from the fact that often it's driven by middle managers rather than senior leaders, I think it needs to be driven by senior leaders. Um, but um, a key reason was the kind of the narrow focus. And, and that's why I created the six enablers of business agility to make sure we weren't ignoring leadership. We weren't ignoring culture. We weren't ignoring structure and HR and finance. So that's one problem. Um, another one is um, it's the kind of incoherence of the changes being made in the organization. Like someone will do something over here. Someone will do something else over there. Someone will do something here. And but nobody's seeing the whole and more importantly, nobody's seeing how those things hang together and whether or not they move you towards your vision or your goal, if you even have one. So I started playing around with a few ways to try and solve those problems. So firstly, do we have a clear vision and a clear goal and, and, and in our change? And there's a great technique out there that uh, originated in Salesforce. It's called V2MOM or V2MOM, vision, values, methods, obstacles, and measures, right? So we've got our vision and our values. We've got our measures. How will we know being successful? We've got our, our methods, which is what are we going to do to make the change? And then we've got the obstacles, right? That's a really useful technique. Um, but then, of course, measures was a bit too, like, there's too much, sorry, um, the methods was a bit too, like, uh, if you're having to go across all of those six enablers, that's a big piece. So I broke that out into the six enablers. And then I thought, well, why don't I just make this visual? I'm a massive fan of the, the business model canvas by Alex Osterwalder. And I, and I shamelessly borrow from that, um, as, as do we all when we create canvases. And I said, why, why don't I just create a business agility canvas that will make sure people cover the vision, the values, the success criteria, the changes that are being made across those six enablers, and crucially, whether they're coherent and consistent with each other in moving towards that vision. And finally, the key risks, the key, the key partners we need, and then the key obstacles that are in the way. So it's a mashup of V2MOM, of my six enablers, of the business model canvas, 
um, and I call it the business agility canvas. And it, it's this great big visual representation of all of the areas of the organization we need to evolve and how those things all play together. And I found it very useful. Uh, like I said, I've stood on the shoulders of many giants um, before creating it, but uh, I know it's something that I find useful and that I know others have found useful because they, uh, you know, they've used it and it's out there and it's, it's for anyone to use. And uh, so uh, check it out if you think that might be valuable to you. So it's freely accessible for anyone who wishes to make use of it. When would you recommend someone make use of such a canvas? Is it is it at the beginning or would you say that it could be of use if, if you've already on an established effort and it might be good to realign? Yeah. What are your thoughts? It's, it's like with all of these things. I mean, ideally, you start with it and you use it as you go. But if you're mid-flight, that doesn't mean you can't now go back and, and say, right, let's, let's just make sure we clarify our vision and we clarify our success criteria and our, and our methods and, and all of these other things. So you can start using it. I think it's really great as a collaboration tool because it's a big visual thing, right? These, these are really great to get leaders stood around. And it's really great for transparency and for communication and for alignment and when you revisit it every two weeks, every four weeks, whatever it is, you know, it just really shows what's happening and, and how you've moved. So I would say, yeah, plan A is you start with it and then you use it the whole way through. Plan B is wherever you are, you, you have a session and you, you kind of just reset around what you're doing and, and, and use it going forward. And, and I've seen both of those used uh, incredibly, um, incredibly well uh, and, and add, it's added a whole ton of value. And it's open source as well. So if you want to hack it to make it work for you, you're more than welcome to do that, right? And I, and I encourage that because, as we said, recipes are contextual. And, and if you think, oh, no, I'm going to change this for that, it's like then use it and tweak it a bit, right? I'm, I'm really not precious about it. So uh, it was really just to, to help the community to, uh, to sort of be better at these transformations because you know we're, we're not great right now. and <laughs> Anything that can help us be better, it, it can only be a good thing. Absolutely. So thank you for sharing that and for you know, sharing it so, so openly so others can use it. And I'm completely on board with everything you're saying there. Whenever I create uh, a template of some kind, I just say, hey, I'm not precious. If this doesn't fit your, your context, your situation, adjust it slightly, tweak it, tweak it, change it if you need to. But it's a good starting point to, to get you there. Uh, I also love how you reference to you know, revisiting it. So, so often these sorts of visuals, these, these canvases are created at the beginning of something and then forgotten about. And they're not revisited, like a definition of done, like a definition of ready, like a, a transformation canvas. They're started with and then forgotten about, and then no one remembers what they're about, and you you don't remain aligned to the the intent behind it. So I like that you're building in that uh, reflection point. And then again, speaking of in flights and standing on the shoulders of giants, I have equivalently created a bit of a, a canvas as well using that same uh, analogy there, the flights analogy. So it's Imagine you're going on a transformation, you're starting some sort of transformation effort, you're trying to be more agile, and you're, you're going on a flight. So you're, you're, you're basically looking to transform and you're, you're trying to imagine, right, who's your flight crew? Who are we? Uh, what's our destination? You know, which, which country are we heading to? Who are our passengers? Who's going to be our customers in this transformation? What are our security checks? You know, what governance do we need in place to make sure we're checking we're making progress? What's the turbulence? So what's the, the things that might get in the way? What's our flight path? Where are we headed first? You know, what steps do we take to, to get us there rather than it being this big bang approach? And what are our, what's our black box? So what's our, what's our metrics that are going to tell us we're, we're moving on the right way? And lastly, what's our PA system? So what's, how, how are we going to communicate to our, our stakeholders and when? How will we be transparent? So 
heavily borrowing from your canvas and others as well, I've created my own version. And again, freely accessible, anyone can use that. And I find that the flights analogy, particularly as you've got flight levels as a, an agile con, um, concept as well, yeah. tends to, yeah, tends to land home. That's a, lovely, that's a lovely metaphor. That's a lovely metaphor that, and now I'm picturing you in like a steward's outfit pushing a trolley along, which uh, uh, makes it makes it makes it even better <laughs> as, well, a, as a visual. Uh, if you had seen me last summer, I, I was wearing more of a, a pilot's outfit, but a, a female one on a hockey tour. So yeah, I, I won't be sharing that photo. It's not not really LinkedIn appropriate, but I've worn that sort of attire before. Wouldn't be a, unaccustomed to it. You've got form. No, it's a great metaphor. I like that. I like that. It works really well. And, and it helps you think about all of those things, right? Because yeah. those things need, like, we need to, how are we going to do this? How are we going to do that, right? It's a, it's a nice metaphor, but also it, it makes sure you don't forget stuff. And, and that's really what these tools are there. It's just like, they're not really telling you things you probably wouldn't have thought of, but they're just making sure nothing falls through the cracks. And, 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 and it's great for alignment. So uh, I like that. I like that. I'll, uh, I'll check that out. I'll make sure you've got a copy and you can take a look. Right. As I alluded to, the theme of season four of the show is about failure and in particular, destigmatizing it. So, Kareem, would you share mm -hmm. with us a time that you have perhaps failed and, and what you may have learned from that experience? Yeah, uh, I, I mean, I've failed a lot. Um, I've failed a lot inside of work. Um, I've failed a lot outside of work. Um you know, I used to I used to be a not very good, right? but uh, I used to play kind of semi-professional tennis, um, um, and and that was basically my childhood. I felt I started when I was four, and and I got really serious when I was about eight or nine, and kind of did this all the way up to um, probably about nineteen or so. Right? And so this was this was, and it was like proper hardcore, um, proper hardcore training. And uh, at multiple hours a day in between schoolwork, um, um, and and then I worked and I worked and I worked and and ultimately I just didn't make it. Right, I just it's a very very competitive world out there. And could I have carved out a career making some money, traveling the world as a as a professional tennis player? Um, yeah, I probably could have. Um, um, but there came there came a point where I was just like, you know, what? I I'm, I don't think I'm good enough to do this um and i um and i, I kind of quit and i went i, I went to study uh, at university instead thankfully i kept up my studies like <laughs> my parents saw to that um and so I, I i had some options um but when i reflect on that i mean i i got i, I got a lot out of it right um the discipline um the training and all of this but the, but the biggest lesson for me is injuries aside looking back I think I I think I quit a bit too early and I wasn't systematic enough about my about my training. If it if it were me now talking to the me then, the, the me who didn't think he was good enough, I would say, right, we need to separate these things out. Physical training, what are we doing here? Strength, speed, flexibility, stamina, what are we doing here? Technique, who are we working with here? Mental strength, who are we working with here? Tactics, who are we working with here? I'd have got it all out. I would have planned it all out. Um, and, and I'd have probably given myself a better chance to have failed a little bit further down the road. Right? When I look back at that, it was a great experience. I didn't make it. Um, but what I learned was I did not take a systematic enough approach to mastery of that game. Would I have been, uh, would I have been Djokovic 
um, winning, you know, 20, 20 majors, 20 Grand Slams. Uh, maybe not, maybe. Um, but could I have gone a lot further? I, I think so. And, and looking, looking at my career now, I'm far more disciplined with, because I worked hard, right? And it wasn't about working hard. It was about working smart. I, I just didn't know all of the areas I needed to be great at. And I didn't find a system. And so for me, finding systems to mastery, it, it was really the key takeaway from me there. And I brought that into my, my practice, like, what is a system for creating a great team? What is a system for a, an organizational transformation? Obviously, you'll start to see these themes in my work, right, where I identify all the areas and I look at the patterns in them. I wish I'd have done that back when I was younger. Um, so that for me is a, an out-of-work uh, failure. Um, my, my project management career was not exactly stellar either. Um, I, I had a lot of failures there, and I, I really didn't find my success until a few years in as a scrum master. I failed for the first two or three years as a scrum master too, right? But all it did was it, it stirred me, as do we all, right? It, it stirred me on to learn and learn and learn. So, uh, you know, those are really failure in sport, failure as a project manager, failure in the early years as a scrum master. And I've had many subsequent, but, uh, you know, I, I think they're getting less spectacular. So, uh, yeah, I, I think as long as you learn from them and you put systems in place to be better going forward, I think that they are character building, if, if not painful at the time. Well, thank you for sharing your story there. Much appreciated. Um, obviously, lessons can be learned from mistakes, failures. I often describe myself as a, a collection of bruises, scars, errors, mistakes, all of which have created the, the Chris that sits before you today. I wouldn't be that person without having learned those lessons, without making those mistakes and without failing. So it's not a, not a bad thing. And as you say, if you've got a system in, in place that enables you to learn from those failures or improve in the future so you avoid doing them again, that's the important thing. And that's why I practice uh, retrospection individually, not just at a team level. I'll sit down on a weekly basis and I'll note down, right, what went well this week? What could I be doing better? How could I have added more value? All these sorts of questions. And that's a system that I employ that helps me continually improve myself. Now, uh, I'd love to hear about your experiences with failure, but on the agile side. So why do you believe agile transformations yeah. fail and what are the signals that, that tell you the smells out there that, that spot that things are failing or aren't going, working well for me the number one reason right because i've talked about some um you know ignoring ignoring the other enablers being a bit too narrow on process practices frameworks tools the number one reason and the first question i ask when i'm working with the client uh, who's doing this who's driving this mm -hmm. like that's that's the first question because the number one reason is the person driving it has all the good intent in the world, but just is not senior enough to drive the change. So unless senior executives, you know, John Cotter, obviously a very well-known change management expert, wrote Leading Change back in the day, in 95 or so. Um, I read a quote from him, 75% at least of the senior executives in an organization or, or in a department, if it's just a departmental transformation, need to feel a real sense of urgency to make this change happen, right? To give it any chance of success. If, if fewer than that feel it, not so much. If just one person of the C-level feels it, almost no chance. And if none of them are involved, you've just got middle managers driving it. Um, well, you know, I may as well be entering the masters and trying to win that. And I've never played golf, right? So it, it's, it's just not going to happen. So, I mean, that for me, like you, you 10X your chances of success if you have the leadership team driving this thing. And that's just like nothing else even comes close to that. Um, 
And once you have that in place, because, it, you know, you, you, we read all the case studies, Satya Nadella's transformation of Microsoft, General Stanley McChrystal's transformation of uh, Joint Special Operations Command. You look at David Marquet turning around the, the USS Santa Fe. Um, I, Ricardo Semler of Semco, I mean, I could go on and on and on. Who is what, what unites those things is that it's the people from the top driving mm. it. So I would say, you know, if you're finding the most senior person there, not just buy-in, because buy-in's great, but they need to be driving the change. Um, and I think for me, it's the thing you need to look at first, and then everything else falls into place. Excellent thoughts. Uh, I love that you mentioned uh, Lieutenant David Marquet, one of my favorite books, uh, Intent-Based Leadership, hugely uh, yeah. changed my mindset as to how I intend to lead. And interestingly, he is a future guest on the show coming up very soon. So look forward to hearing from him about intent-based leadership in particular. Oh, in that's my... amazing. Make, make sure he goes after me. Make sure he goes after me. Though I don't want to follow David Marquet. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's actually, I think, the other way around. But we'll, we'll, we'll try and figure out the order. <laughs> anyway, um, yes, yeah, so I, I love what you, you've said there. How, not just buy-in but them driving that yeah. change. You know, they're, they're, there's often a reason for change, some sort of burning platform, something that forces people to think about it. But until everyone's aligned around that, and again, this is where some of the uh, the visuals like a transformation canvas, the business jersey canvas can can align people around. Why are we changing? What's our reason yeah. for that? And then hopefully yeah. we can get those people not just bought in, but driving it themselves. It's vital, right? So, so, so often, like you get this. Uh, we're doing an agile transformation. Like you, wherever you ask, like nobody quite knows why. We, we need to be more agile. Yeah, you're great, but but why? Like for me, there's like there there must be a business. Your results must be different to what you want your results to be. Otherwise, like there isn't a problem, right? If you if you're really effective as an organization, really innovative, really driving value, or you're, or if it's just you know your your software engineering or whatever it is. If you're really great at that, we don't tend to say we need to transform. It's when it's when results don't match expectations. And so how can we quantify results not matching expectations? What kind of results do you want? Mm-hmm. And then it's like, okay, we're here and we need to be here. How do we get better at X? Um, and you know, maybe agility is part of the solution. It's, it's almost never the whole of the solution. It's part of the solution as part of a holistic transformation. Um, but, you know, it, it takes a, a lot of tough thinking to come to that, to really put your nail in and diagnose the problem. Like, it takes a lot of brain power. And it's just so easy to say, let's do an agile transformation. But it's meaningless if we don't know what problem we're trying to solve. Uh, so uh, and once we have that problem, then you can unite leaders around that problem and say, hey, we, we are X, Y and Z and we're getting hammered by our competitors. We need to be like this, I think. We need these changes to allow us to be like this. And then you can get them on board, right? You've got that sense of urgency and that focus on what you're trying to achieve. So this is vital. Completely. And often, in my experience, leaders, they don't care about agile. They don't care about waterfall. They are just methods to achieve the outcomes and the results they're looking for. So sometimes you can remove agile from the equation and just say fundamentally, right, what outcomes are we seeking? What's the problem we're trying to solve here? And are our current ways we're working helping us move towards those outcomes or not? And if not, what can we do differently? So starting with that as a mindset. Can yeah. be fun. And Mike Cohen was saying to me when he, when he appeared on the podcast as well, he's looking forward to when agile is no longer a thing because it's just the way we do things. It just makes sense. It's how we operate. Yeah. It should be the way we do things. And then, then the question is just how do we improve? Yes. How do we improve in these areas, yes. right? Because, right? like I said, uh, agile, uh, agile is actually an adjective; it's not a verb. 
Um, so we, we don't do it any more than we can do purple, right? Yeah. But, but we have to be it in order to be effective. Um, and effective is different for, for every organization. And remember, not, not every organization needs agility, right? You've got low levels of uncertainty and complexity and volatility. Maybe you should focus purely on efficiency and, and leave, the, leave the agility to, to the parts of the organization which are a bit less predictable and planable. It's another thing I think that we as coaches are guilty of. It's like, yeah, we can use Agile. We can use Scrum to do everything. It's like, but it's really expensive if you don't need to do it that way, right? All, all that inspect and adapt. If you know the answer already, just execute better. <laughs> so yeah, um, I, I agree. But yeah, I agree with Mike on that. It should just be how we work now. Yeah. And given you shared a failure of yours, that was actually a failure of mine. So I used to, I think I mentioned, describe myself as an agile evangelist. And I used to go into new clients and be like, agile is going to work for you. We're going to try this and it's going to be great. And then I learned, again, it's it's not necessarily about being agile. It's about yeah. are the ways you're working meeting your outcomes or helping you get your outcomes? And are you improving your ways of working? That's all that matters. And as you yeah. say, there are environments and where... Then... Sorry? No, no, please, please. Okay, there are there are environments, there are contexts where agile doesn't necessarily make sense. If you've got a very fixed scope, for example, GDPR was a big piece of legislation brought in Europe. Everyone knew exactly what it was for years in advance. The scope wasn't changing; it was very fixed. Everyone had a clear time scale. That would be a perfect opportunity to do something in a waterfall way. You could still do that in agile, but it wasn't. Yeah, there wasn't a lot of change or complexity. Arguably, complexity. You know, for GDPR, people still don't understand it. There wasn't a huge volume of change and you had a very fixed uh, time frame. So that could have been done quite perfectly in Waterfall. No, it really could. And, and it's, it's interesting what you say, because, again, that's another mistake of mine over the years, is you kind of say this is how you should be doing it. And the, the kind of the, the unsaid, the implication is that you're doing it all wrong. Yes. And, and firstly, these organizations aren't doing it all wrong. They're successful organizations, successful enough to pay our salary and a lot more probably. So they're doing they're doing a lot right, probably a lot more right than they're doing wrong. And so, you know, going in and saying this is all rubbish, you're all, you're, like, you're all doing this. And it, firstly, those people design that system. So how do you think that's making them feel? Mm. And, and secondly, and this is something I learned from Craig Larman. And I've learned a lot from Craig Larman over the years, but um, it, it's not it's not about good or bad, right and wrong. It's about is, are these practices and processes and is is this moving you towards where you want to be or away from where you want to be. If we made this change, would it help you move towards your goal or away from your goal? It's not about right or wrong. You've told me you value this. I think if you do this, it might go against that. So maybe if you did that, it would help you get what you wanted. And and, and once you start framing it as, are you moving towards or away from your goals? Then suddenly it's not like people don't feel that judgment on the system they've created. And uh, you know you learn that lesson the hard way by annoying so many people that you feel like you've, you've burnt all your or your social capital and you have to move on to another organization because no one takes you seriously now. So that's happened a few times too. Absolutely. Right. I, I saw a recent uh, sharing of yours on LinkedIn that was talking about negative features, right? So the concept that, that people or companies yeah. should have more negative items on their backlog to remove things from their products, because a lot of products aren't used, aren't adding value, and are essentially a cost because you have to maintain that over time. You know, that there is a cost to maintaining code. So tell me a little bit more about the, the, I guess, the origin, the genesis behind that. Why did you feel that was important to share? Well, I mean, I've just noticed over the years that product backlogs, you know, and I'm talking about Scrum. It doesn't have to be Scrum. Let's say product backlogs anyway. It's always, what can we add? Right? Mm -hmm. What new features can we put out? Like, what can we... 
And, you know, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of these and I'm a huge fan of Steve Jobs and Apple. And if you look at their design, it's just so simple and mm. there's nothing in there that doesn't need to be in there. Right. And, you know, oh, I only want one button on the original, uh, on the original iPhone, right? There, there are no buttons now. Right. Um, and it's like, we don't need a manual. It's not complex. And, and so many products are just like, how do we do this? And there's this feature and that feature and I don't use half of it. And are we tracking how, what features people use? And let's say you had a hundred features and 50 of them weren't used. Why are they there? If you took those away, it's not that it, you, you wouldn't lose value. You would create value by making your product simpler, easier to use, cleaner, easier to maintain. So for me, product backlogs should be a mix of what can we add? It should, what can we improve that's there? And what can we remove that's unnecessary and making our product more complex than it needs to? And, you know, I don't think I created this idea. I think I've, I've read it before somewhere. Uh, maybe it was Marty Kagan. Maybe it was somewhere else. Maybe it's like all the books I've read on about Steve Jobs. Um, but people don't really think about what can we remove. And so the idea of a negative item on your product backlog is a right. This features for the chop because no one uses it or or whatever. You know, it's it's no longer aligned with how we want our system to work. Um, it's just so unusual to see that. So uh, it popped into my head. So I uh, I shared it as I often do. So I'm glad you saw it. I saw it. I was I was a fan, and I think it aligns to one of the principles of agile, right? Simplicity is maximizing the amount of work not done, so the amount of things that you don't have. Yeah. And I think you could apply that exact same logic to how organizations work, right? So so often, what happens yeah. is organizations add bureaucracy, they add meetings, they add reporting to to feel in more in control. And so what so often or so I, I see so much seldom is how can we remove bureaucracy? How can we remove meetings? How can we allow you to just focus on getting the stuff done? And I think equally, when it comes to agile transformation, that side of things should be considered as well. Massively. And I'm, I'm actually, it's funny you say that because I'm, I've literally just started reading uh, Roger Martin's newest book. I love Roger Martin, by the way. I, I, everything he writes, I will read. Um, and so A New Way to Think is his latest book. And in the very first chapter, he talks about corporate strategy and layers, right? Um, and he says, if each layer is not adding more value to the front line than its cost, then get rid of it. Yep. Like it's, it's like, and, and you get rid of whole product lines, you get rid of um, products, you get rid of whole brands, you might even get rid of hair care as a product line, if it's not adding value, more value than it's costing having. Um, I think the same is true of any process, any sign off, any bit of bureaucracy, any report, any rule, um, or any product that you have in your organization, right? Is it costing you more to maintain it than it's adding value to the front line where your customers consume your value? And and if, and and then you, I think we'll find lots of organizations pruning and becoming much leaner. You know, it's, it's all very well saying we need to prune our product backlog, get rid of things that we don't actually need, but also we need to prune our products. We need to prune our product lines. We need to prune prune our bureaucracy and our layers too. Um, um, and so it's really nice to read that um, in. Uh, in Roger Martin's latest book, because he's, he's basically saying the same thing from a corporate level. Completely agree. I have to take a look out for that book. Now, given the theme of this podcast is about amplifying perhaps newer voices, is there anyone out there you think is doing some great work whose voice should be heard that we could amplify? Is there anyone I should reach out to to get involved in the show, Kareem? Oh, that's a, that's a great question, isn't it? Um, so I think there are two answers to that question. I think there's some uh, some great uh, voices in the agile space, which 
um, I think are are not um, not necessarily heard as much as they could. And there are some great voices way beyond the agile space, um, which are, are, are maybe getting a huge audience, but not as huge an audience um, in uh, in the in the agile world, right? So, I mean. I dare say you're, you're familiar with all, all the people in the second category, right? you know, the people like the Gary Hamels, the Alex Osterwalders. And, um, and so I, I think I'd love to get those people more involved in the agile space. But the first one who, who in, who in our space is um, really, really kind of deserves um, a spot. That's a good one. Um, I, I would have to say um, for me, uh, there's a, uh, is one of my good friends as well. So uh uh, I'll say it, and I've known him pretty much as long as I've known anyone in the Agile space. Um, uh, and uh, he's called George Fashing. I don't know if you're familiar with George. Um, he is incredible uh, coach of teams and, and of leaders as well. Um, and I think a lot of the stuff he does around coaching really great teams uh, is I've always loved his work. I found, you know, you know, some people like they they kind of rehash what's out there and some people create new stuff um and george creates new stuff for me and i'm always interested in what he's doing and what he's working on he's a really great coach um and um like i said he's he's from our world and i always feel like he could uh, he's got a platform but i think bringing his work to uh, to a wider audience would be great so i i'd urge you to have a chat with george i think you'll have a really good conversation um and uh, and uh, you probably both learn a lot Sounds great. I will reach out. Now, uh, time to add something new to my backlog, Karim. As I mentioned, I create these theme templates, retrospectives, canvases, and other eyes. So what area of the agile sphere could do with a bit of creative thinking? What would you add to my backlog? And as I mentioned, there's all sorts that have come out there. We've had Mike Cohen's Taco Tuesday. We've had Jeff, um, Jeff Watts did Wild West, and I released that recently. So anything you can think of, give me a theme and I'll create something new. Wild West. Was 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 Wild West a, uh, a retrospective? Was it was that was that what what it, what it was? It was, what was the it Wild was West? What I called a micro retrospective. Yeah, it was what I called a micro retrospective. It was like a, a short thirty minutes where you simply say, right, you're most wanted. What is it? What is the most important thing to address right now? And then take your six shooter, get your get your revolver, and you've got six things that you could try to fix it, and then prioritize that one thing, and then take that forwards. Nice. Well, I you know I'm I'm a. I'm a big fan of retrospectives and I think they, they are, I mean, I mean, a lot's written about them, but like trying to, this is the, one of the, the hardest things as a scrum master was to continually design engaging retrospectives, right? Cause every couple of weeks you've got to do something different. It's like, ah, this is really stressful. Um, so what I'll suggest now I've got two, I've got two little girls. Um, they're seven and nine. Um, so I watch a disproportionate amount of Disney Plus. Um, okay. Well, probably not disproportionate. It's probably exactly the amount of Disney Plus you'd expect me to be watching. So, um, you know, I'm, as a as a card carrying Moana fan, what I would love is doesn't need to be that a, a kind of some kind of standard Disney animation themed retrospective. You could come up with um, you know heroes and villains and princesses and. All of that good stuff, if you could work that into an engaging retrospective, because I think it would be fun. And I think that would be a great thing for people to show their kids that they've been doing at work today. And uh, we know they're all going to love that. So that would be my challenge to you. All right. It's on the backlog, Kareem. I will do that. 
Now, is there Fabulous. anything else you'd like to anything else you'd like to share with our listeners before we close up, Groom? Um, no, I think we've covered like we've covered uh, a lot of the, the the stuff that I'm 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 working on. Um, now, I actually got another little side project. Since saying no, I've changed my answer to yes. Um, the um, I've had a I've had a um, I mean, this is probably a longer conversation, but I'll try and squeeze it in. I've had a bit of a challenge with the whole agile coaching world for some time. And that is, you know, let me ask you this question, actually. Um, If you didn't know the agile coaching world, and so, you know, speaking to somebody is quite a hard thing to do to gauge how good someone is. And you had to, you know, if you're hiring a doctor, right, you want them to be a medical doctor. Um, And if, you know, when McKinsey are hiring uh, consultants, like there's there's the go-to, which is the MBA, what would you say is the go-to for an agile coach? Just out of interest, before I answer the question. Well, that's a tough question. Um, the thing is, there's there's no there's no single certification that covers it. Um, yeah, most of the certifications out there are kind of a few days of training, and then you get a qualification at the end. The closest I would say to me is the ones that bring in longitudinal learning. So the uh, IC Agile EC uh, expert cohorts where you've got nine months plus of work alongside other established, credible professionals, that I would say is, is the closer marker for me of someone who is who I could rely upon to perform well as a coach. Or yeah, one of the uh, MCC and PCC, those sorts of things where you have to demonstrate continuous progress yeah. rather than a two-day scrum master rather than a a five-day course rather than a safe course you know a combination of those over time may suggest someone's got the breadth of knowledge and they may perform well but to me it's it's those ones that build in longitudinal learning and cohort-based study yeah good answer i like it it's tough though isn't it because you know there aren't so many of those and lots of those make you commit to an ecosystem right so you commit to the ic agile ecosystem or you commit to the safe ecosystem um, or you commit to the Scrum Alliance ecosystem. And once you're in it, it's quite hard to dip out. And if I did something somewhere else that, that doesn't count towards my main journey, right? If I want to be a CEC or a CTC, then I have to stay here. So um, this is a problem, I think. I think that there, there really needs to be, like, if you're a coach, right? And I did my coach training, I'm a PCC, right? That's all you need to say. I'm a PCC and it demonstrates that you've done it. You've got experience, you've got references, you've had training. And so what my colleague Saurabh Salimi and I uh, are, are doing is we are creating just that, something that is agnostic. So you do training at the Scrum Alliance, great. Scrum.org, great. IC Agile, safe. You've gone and done Alex Osterwalder's business model canvas, brilliant. That all counts. And what we're creating is um, uh, associate, uh, business agility coach, professional business agility coach, and expert business agility coach. And to get that, you need this amount of training, you need case studies, you need client references, um, and you need to demonstrate across these core competencies. Uh, and it's going to be the most rigorous and most difficult credential to get. So I'm excited about it because when somebody has it, basically associate will will map to team level coach, professional will map to, map to team of team or program level coach, and expert will map to enterprise level coach. When you have that thing, you have validated case studies and client references and you've done it and you've demonstrated that you've done it and so when someone sees that they're going to say okay this person 
knows their stuff. They've got deep experience, deep learning across all of these areas. Um, and I can rely on that person. So I'm super excited about creating this. Hopefully we'll be launching it soon, but uh, uh, look out for that. It's coming because I, I think we need to raise the bar of what it means to be an agile coach rather than, hey, you went on a two-day course. Congratulations, here's your diploma, right? It doesn't work like that. So um, yeah, I think that's quite exciting. I've been working on that. I think it's a, a very interesting concept. I think it's solving a problem that, that does exist. And I, as someone who describes himself as, as agile agnostic, I have I have explicitly not gone down a certain coaching pathway to become a, a CEC or or otherwise for that exact purpose because it can lock you into an ecosystem, and as you said, it doesn't it does. necessarily count towards other things. And for me, someone who's got the a number or a, a knowledge of a range of frameworks, different approaches, to, I'd prefer to have them working with me than someone who is just maybe a Scrum certified coach. So yeah, I, I like the, the sound of that. Right, it's interesting how it comes. Yeah, I'll keep, I'll keep you posted, but uh, we'll be launching that in the next uh, month or two. So uh, uh, it's been fun. It's been fun. Uh, and I'll, I'll, uh, I'll let you know because uh, I dare say it could be something that you would uh, probably have the hours to qualify for. Quite possibly, yeah. Right. It's been a pleasure to host you on the show, Kareem. We are always looking for new guests to appear on the show. So do reach out if you'd like to be involved. As you know, we have a, glow a growing Slack community of practice. So grab the link from the website, www.thevirtualagilecoach.co.uk. It'd be great to have you involved. As always, folks, don't stop believing. You've just listened to another episode of the Virtually Agile podcast. Don't forget to check out www.thevirtualagilecoach.co.uk for one of the largest collections of free templates on the web on all things agile. If this show provided value, I'd love your support by following or subscribing on your platform of choice. See you folks next time.